John in chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 22 through 30 and I've asked Neil Slater to pray God's blessing upon the word spoken. Give attention please then to John chapter 10 verse 22. And it was the feast of the dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. The Jews therefore came round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou hold us in suspense? If thou art the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who hath given them unto me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let us pray. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. John's only other use of the word in his book, in his gospel, the only other place that he uses this word perish is in 10:28 verse 28 that we just read in that passage 
Outside of that, it is only uttered once, and that by Caiaphas in chapter 11, and that in reference to the nation of Israel in a political comment, I believe. So really, with regard to the, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those whom he loves, those whom, for whom Christ gave his life, as far as any word perish being spoken of them, John only uses it twice. In John 3.16 and in John 10.28, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. For God so loved the world, of course, is, I imagine, one of the best known passages or verses in the scriptures, maybe only second to the 23rd Psalm, if indeed it's second to that. One of the best known, but also sadly, one of the, one of the most distorted verses in the scriptures. Many proclaim that John 3.16 is indeed the gospel in a nutshell. I don't agree with that assessment. I believe rather that it's the reason for the gospel and it's a glorious verse and it's wonderful. But I don't believe that it is the gospel. The gospel as uttered by Jesus when he began his ministry was repent and believe. And he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. The gospel must be collated from many passages. I don't know if we can really find one passage where it could be said that it's the gospel in a nutshell. I don't deny how blessed John 3.16 is in its truth spoken here and the reason for God's giving his only begotten son to his people. But as you well know, I'm sure, and one of the first things that uh, an individual embracing the sovereignty of God, embracing the doctrines of grace, do we dare say Calvinism, one of the first things that our experience encounters with others is arguing about this verse. I'm sure that we have all experienced that. You take the Universalist, for example, who wants to take this, for God so loved the world, and argue that everyone's going to be saved because God loves the whole world. They don't distinguish from the context, they don't distinguish the use of the word world in here. And of course, there are some that don't make that argument. They don't try to make that case, but they stress God's love. And they love to go to one of the epistles of John where he says those grand words, God is love. And indeed, he is, but he's more than love. And his love is the holy love that cannot look upon sin. And they discount that. And so this scripture has been abused, sadly. We see it on billboards, perhaps. We see it in the black grease under football players' eyes. We see it many, many places. And yet it is misused. It is misused so often by those that imagine that everyone's going to heaven. 
Do they really believe that Judas Iscariot is in heaven? Do they really believe that wicked men like Hitler and many others, even in our day, are in heaven or are on their way to heaven? They distort this passage so much. But I'm not wanting or wishing to focus so much today on the idea of God's love for the world, which is magnificent and glorious for the people of God in and of itself. But I want to look at this more toward the end, that these individuals should not perish. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone make that point when they go to this passage. They should not perish. Let me read the beginning of this 10th chapter because it has such a bearing on the text that I just read from 22 to 30. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. When he hath put all his, forth all his own, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things were, what they were which he spake unto them. This parable, the word here is not the Greek word parabole that is so often translated parable in our copies of God's word. But this word that we have rendered parable in some of our copies is actually a different Greek word, paromia. It's a different Greek word, and it's one that only John uses, strangely enough. It's been rendered a number of different ways. It's been rendered as an illustration, as a figure of speech, as an analogy, as an allegory, as a metaphor, as a similitude, even a picture story, one translation renders it, as well as proverb. It has been rendered in my copy as parable. Vine, in his helpful dictionary of New Testament words, has said that paromia, paromia denotes a wayside saying something that is uttered in, a, in passing, a passing reference. Of course, Jesus' teaching and preaching was peripatetic in so many cases. He was walking along, even as we see in 22, that he was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. So that might be understandable that he would, that it could be rendered that way. It speaks of a wayside saying or a byword, just a passing statement or a maxim. These are some of the things that this word is used for, but only John, among the gospel writers, has used this particular word. Peter used it in 
Second Peter 2 and verse 22, when he said, It happened unto them according to the true proverb. And that's translated in most translations as proverb. But it again is pero, peroimia. And the true proverb is, of course, Proverbs 26, 11. Peter's actually citing a proverb, which I'm sure led the translators to go ahead and render it here as proverb. But the word, as I mentioned in my copy, is sometimes spoken of as a parable or a figurative discourse. In John, in the 16th chapter, it's actually rendered in the American Standard Version alone. It's rendered as dark sayings, such as we find when we read in the Old Testament, Psalm 78, 2. I will utter dark sayings. And also in Proverbs 1, 6, I will speak to thee in dark sayings. But in those verses, it's correlated with Proverbs, so that you see the analogy immediately before you. You see proverb mentioned in the next line, dark sayings. So it's very understandable that these dark sayings mentioned are indeed proverbs or parables. But whichever translation that we use, it is difficult, it is extremely difficult to imagine that Christ was not recalling not recalling to his disciples and to his audience that he was not recalling Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, when he uttered these words beginning John chapter 10, that he was not having a reference and reminding them of what God had spoken through Ezekiel in 34 at verse 7. Hear what Ezekiel what God had to say through Ezekiel. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Jehovah. As I live, saith the Lord Jehovah, surely for as much as my sheep became a prey, and my sheep became food to all the beasts of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my sheep, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my sheep. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Jehovah, Thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the sheep. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. And I, and I will deliver my sheep from their mouth, that they may not be food for them. Here's a picture of these false shepherds in Ezekiel. But at the conclusion of this passage or paragraph, the reference is made to God as the shepherd of his sheep. I will deliver my sheep. As in other places, the Pharisees, as in other places uh, where Christ speaks, the Pharisees recognize that he's talking about them. And here they recognize that he has indeed spoken of them when he uttered these words about these sheep that haven't come through the door. They've come through another way. They've climbed over the wall. He refers to them as thieves and robbers. So it's no wonder that we read in 19 through 21 the um, argument of these Pharisees, the division among them, and claiming that he has a demon, and why are you listening to him? 
Others said, contrary wise, these are not the sayings of one possessed with a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? When we read that, it seems like that Jesus is speaking specifically of the behavior of the Pharisees with regard to the man who was born blind from his birth, who was blind from his birth and Christ gave him sight. And if you look at chapter 9, and hopefully you remember that instance, that miracle of healing, how he gave sight to that blind man. And then just to bring it to a quick and a swift conclusion, without all the details and the dialogue, the Pharisees excommunicated this man. They threw him out. They cast out the sheep. How do we know that he was a sheep? Jesus tells us, and he told them. He heard his voice. He heard the voice of the shepherd. But these Pharisees knew that he was speaking of them. But he's not only speaking of these Pharisees. He's speaking of himself. He says uh, in a couple places down in verse 11 and in another verse that he declares that I am the good shepherd. The one that we read in, in Ezekiel that will feed his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm not like these shepherds. I am the good shepherd. There was a man in the Church of Scotland in the 17th century famous among Scottish divines, as they called him back then. But he was a supporter of the Episcopal Church. And it wasn't very popular in Scotland. There was a need of this particular congregation, a need for a, a pastor, an elder, a preacher. And the landowner, who under this Episcopal form, the landowner was given the right to appoint a man to supply the pulpit. And he appointed Alexander Henderson. And when Henderson showed up to take his office, the door of the church was locked. The people had locked it. They weren't gonna let him in. He had to climb through a window, just like Jesus is talking about these thieves and robbers climbing over a wall. Henderson had to climb through a window in order to take that pulpit. Subsequent to that, by a few months, he went to hear the well-known Robert Bruce preach a sermon. Guess what Bruce preached on? He preached on John 10. The thief coming over the wall and not through the door. Henderson was convicted, realized he had never been regenerated. He was converted under the preaching of that word and became a shining light in the Church of Scotland in the 17th century. And this word that Jesus spoke, as we just said, it's for us today as well. It was for the Pharisees. It was for those in the 17th century who had come over the wall. It's for men today that have come over the wall, that have not come through the door. It may be difficult to believe and accept, but there are men today in the ministry, in the pulpit, that aren't converted themselves. I'm not saying that we can stand back. We, don't, we can't read hearts. God hasn't given us that ability. Praise him for not giving us that ability. But we can understand that there are men. And perhaps retrospectively, 
when some have admitted it later on. Men in the pulpit that are not converted themselves. And these words were spoken about such and to such, but also being spoken about the good shepherd. The good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, who said in verse 10 of Ezekiel, as we read, I will deliver my sheep from their mouth. This is the good shepherd that does that. And it reminds us of 1 Samuel 17, 34 and through 36, where David presents himself to Saul as the, this man that's not really a much of a warrior yet. He's, just, he's not the little child that some painters make out, but he was a young man who wasn't seasoned in warfare yet, I don't believe. But he presents himself to Saul. You know, why are you letting this giant Philistine berate our God and blaspheme him before your people? I'll go out. And Saul basically said, how are you going to be able to do anything? You're just a little stripling. You're not seasoned. You can't even wear my armor and, and bear my sword. You're, you're not big enough. And David pointed out to him that he was a shepherd, but when he was out watching the sheep, that a lion and a bear came on two different occasions, presumably. But in both cases... He laid hold of the lion. He laid hold of the lion and broke its neck. He slew that lion. Ready to, he was ready to lay down his life for his sheep, his father's sheep. And David, of course, is an eminent type of our Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for his sheep. And so we think of David, and we think of that typology, and this is what Christ was saying in this verse 28 of chapter 10, that he's the good shepherd, but he's saying that I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He will lay down his life to deliver the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, and I know mine and mine own know me. This is the wonderful teaching of this parable. That his sheep know him. He knows them. They know his voice. They recognize his voice. Perhaps you remember the time. Maybe you had heard the scriptures for years and years. But you didn't really hear them. Perhaps you remember the time that one day, all of a sudden, you heard the word of God. You actually heard it. If I can put it this way, your heart heard it. Your ears had been hearing it for years, perhaps. But Jesus says here, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know me, and I know them. And they follow me, for they know my voice. Was that when you began following Christ, the good shepherd? I believe it, it certainly was. When you began following, when you heard his voice, when he called. They all, all don't hear his voice. 
Many hear the word of God proclaimed. Many. Vast multitudes. But they don't hear his voice in the word of God. They don't hear his voice. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, 43, he says, why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You cannot hear my word. Well, you hear the sound. You maybe can pick out the verbiage, but you're not hearing my voice. You're not hearing my voice. Why? Because you're not one of my sheep. I've called this the election connection, verses 26 and 28. Ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. Undergirds this never perish of verse 28, the preservation and the perseverance of Christ's people, of his sheep. Because they are his people, because they've been chosen, because they've been elected, they hear his voice. But these others, they believe not because they are not his sheep. Ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. He did not say, understand this, he did not say, ye are not my sheep because ye didn't hear my voice. He didn't say that. He said, you don't hear my voice because you're not my sheep. You cannot hear my voice because you're not my sheep. Some might like to and surely have twisted that around even in their own thinking. They may have memorized this verse and memorized it backward and, and said to themselves, you want to become one of Jesus' sheep? Just hear his voice. But you can't until you are one of his sheep. His sheep hear his voice because they are his sheep. And when he calls, then they hear. And they follow him. He gives unto his sheep repentance. He gives unto his sheep faith. He gives unto his sheep a hearing ear. And Jesus knows his sheep. Of course, he knows them because he's God. But he knows them, we're told in this portion of God's word. He knows them. And he knows them because... They hear his voice. The ones that don't hear his voice aren't his sheep. He knows the ones that are his because they hear his voice. Is Jesus profiling? Yes. Yes, he is. The ones that hear his voice are his sheep. The others are not. Those that hear the shepherd's voice are the sheep that belong to the shepherd. And this is why none can snatch you or me if we're in Christ. None can snatch you or me out of his hand. None can snatch you, he goes on to say, or me out of the Father's hand. In John 6, one of the first passages that was pointed out to me when I was coming to Christ was John 6, no man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I will raise him up at the last day. I can raise him up at the last day. I can wait until the last day to raise him up because no one can snatch him out of my hand. 
No one can ever snatch him out of my hand. Those will persevere. They will persevere who are his sheep. That's part of the teaching of the scripture, part of the doctrine of election. Those that belong to Christ, they shall never perish. They will be preserved. They will persevere. No one can snatch them out of the shepherd's hand. And we can say, I am his. I am the good shepherd's sheep. I am his and he is mine. God placed his sheep from before the foundation of the world in his son's hand. And none can snatch them out. Never, ever. Not even our own selves can snatch us out of his hand. Never perish, the scripture says. Is that amount to the same thing as once saved, always saved? It could be argued that that means the same thing, but it's dangerous. Once saved, always saved. Sounds good to many people, I'm sure. But does that indeed bring in the certainty of perseverance and preservation of the saints? Our teaching this morning is not a corollary with that once saved, always saved fundamental message. It isn't. I don't wish to ever use that expression again. I don't even care that much for the idea of eternal security. I like preservation and perseverance of the saints because the saints persevere, the sheep persevere because they are being preserved by the shepherd and being preserved by the shepherd's father. These poor, confused people so often are inconsistent. I remember when I was so anxious to tell a Christian uncle who was, we were living in Michigan and he was in Florida at the time. The first time that we went down there after the Lord had brought me to himself, I could hardly wait to tell him what the Lord had done for me. My uncle was an unashamed Armenian, but he was a confused Armenian, as many of them are. And we talked and we talked, and I, I grew to really love my uncle. And he was very honest. And he told me after we had talked for an entire day, he said, all these years, and I think he was probably about 60 at the time, he said, all these years, I thought I was a Calvinist. I guess I'm not. Because he held to that once saved, always saved. That one doctrine that a lot of Arminians like to lay hold of. The only consistent Arminians that I'm aware of are those in the body of believers, body of professing Christians known as the Church of Christ, who believe, actually believe they can lose their salvation. Well, what do they do about that then? How do they deal with that? Where's their blessed hope? Well, they get baptized again. They're totally confused and in error about the doctrine of salvation and they're just as confused about the doctrine of baptism. They lose their salvation so they get saved again. And they get saved again and again and again. 
but they are more consistent. You understand what I'm saying? They believe that they did something to save themselves so they can lose it. That's more consistent, is it not? Frankly, if you decided for Christ based upon your own free will, what keeps you from undeciding? So at least they're more consistent. And sadly, one of the charges against this this teaching is that it leads to antinomianism, that it leads to living outside of the law of God, that it leads to lawlessness. You believe that you can never lose your salvation, so go ahead and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You went down the aisle, you're saved. For life, forever and ever. Once saved, always saved. You see the confusion there, though. They're really, what they're really saying is, once you go down the aisle, or they're saying, once you raise your hand, or once you said the sinner's prayer, it is true that once God saves you, that you can never lose your salvation. But we'll be charged, Calvinists have been charged for centuries with antinomianism because of the teaching. And so we have to be careful that we avoid any kind of antinomian traits or even giving the impression or the appearance. Sadly, there are people that teach that it doesn't matter what you do. And they don't think of themselves as antinomians, but they are. They teach that you can do anything you want. It doesn't matter because you raise your hand and so on and so forth. And you can't lose your salvation. They teach things like that, and it's sad. They even teach that a man, a woman, can deny their faith, can deny the Lord Jesus Christ, can deny that he's the Savior of the world, can deny that he's God, can deny. I don't mean just denying him out of fear like Peter. I mean denying the truth that they once claimed to accept. that they're saved anyway. Because they did something at one point in time. Because they went down the aisle and so on and so forth. Because they did the thing that they were called upon to do. They think that they're saved. And these people are teaching. And I was really glad when Chuck brought out a few years ago a distinction between those that are deceived and the ones that deceive, that do the deceiving, that they will receive more stripes. There are many deceived. And they may be true Christians, but the ones that do the deceiving? Another matter. We need to live holy lives We need to strive after that holiness without which no man shall see God's face. We need to strive after that. And if we do that, then we will set aside the ability of these people to charge us with antinomianism. It's terrible to teach that sort of thing. It is terrible. Those folk that that basically think that we do something to save ourselves, that something that we do 
is that which saves us. There have even been tracts written, how to be born again. Can you imagine that? How to be born again. We had nothing to do with our natural birth, and it would be impossible for us to have anything to do with our natural birth, and we can't have anything to do with our spiritual birth. Indeed, one very well-known evangelist has written a book. I don't know how many pages, but it's more, it's a, it's a book. It's more than, than just a track, and the title of that book is How to Be Born Again. You can imagine what he's suggesting. I don't know that I could stomach reading it just to find out. But how terrible that is. Isn't that the question that Nicodemus asked Christ? How can I be born again, to put it that way? Isn't that, isn't that tantamount to the question, how can a man be born again? Nicodemus said to Christ, did Christ say, oh, wait a minute, go on this website and order one of these books. And they'll tell you how to be born again. That's not what Jesus said. One of those books, believe it or not, because it had this, the signature of the author, they were asking $300 for <laughs> Anybody buy that is really a dumb sheep. $300 because it has this man's signature on it. All they have to do is pick up their Bibles and read the answer that Christ gave to Nicodemus. He said, The wind bloweth where it will, and thou hearest the voice thereof, but knoweth not whence it cometh. Now, yes, that's very enigmatic, and it's difficult to understand. But we do read in John that Nicodemus understood later. He came to an understanding, evidently because he was one of the good shepherd's sheep. There's a much better track by J.C. Ryle, and the title of that is, Are You Born Again? That's a good question to ask. Are you born again? And it's based on John's first epistle, like was brought out in Sunday school. You know, the question about loving one another. Do you love one another? J.C. Ryle would ask you. If you do, then you have good reason to believe that you have been born again. It's not a natural thing. You love the word of God. It's not a natural thing. And so on. And he goes through all the issues that John raises in that epistle. But he's asking the question, are you born again? Examine yourself. Prove your own selves, the scripture says. Are you born again? Not how to be born again. What a folly that is. Can you know that you have been born again? Can you know that the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart? Can you know? Are you born again? Ask yourself this question. Do you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd? When you pick up your Bible, when you read the scriptures, do you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd? You know what I'm talking about. If you're in Christ, you know what I'm talking about. We hear the voice of God when we read his word. We hear the voice of the good shepherd when we read the scriptures. And we know that God has done something. 
that our heart has been regenerated, it's been renewed. Yes, we need it quickened again and again, every day, every day. But we know that something has happened that we couldn't do. And we know that we have indeed been born again. Those in Christ from before the foundation of the world will be regenerated. They will hear the voice of the good shepherd. They will follow him. Those in Christ from before the foundation of the world will hear his voice. The elect were placed in Christ from before the foundation of the world. They are his sheep. They will hear his voice. The Father put his people in the hands of the Son. The Father put his people in the hands of the Son. He gave them to Jesus before the foundation of the world. The sheep are in the hands of the Good Shepherd. They will hear him. They will come to him. They will follow him. And they will never perish. One writer said very well, I believe, the ultimate security of Jesus' sheep rests with the good shepherd. It is not all about you. It is not all about me. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the God-man. He's the savior of the world. Are you in the hands of the good shepherd? And again with J.C. Ryle, I ask, are you born again? Let me read that quotation that's on the back of your bulletin from J.C. Ryle also. He said, there are two points in religion on which the teaching of the Bible is very plain and distinct. One of these points is the fearful danger of the ungodly. The fearful danger of the ungodly. The other is the perfect safety of the righteous. Now you know that J.C. Ryle knew that none was righteous in himself. He's talking about the righteousness of Christ, the good shepherd. He goes on, one is the happiness of those who are converted. The other is the misery of those who are unconverted. One is the blessedness of being in the way to heaven. The other is the wretchedness of being in the way to hell. Are you born again? But I would contend better yet to listen to the Apostle Paul from his letter to the church at Colossae. Listen to what Paul, and I'm going to collate a few passages from that epistle when he speaks of the importance of knowing the shepherd and being known of him. If we would be with Christ forever, we must be with him now. Paul solemnly asserts this reality in that epistle. And we consolidate his teaching from three verses in 2.20. If ye died with Christ, if then ye were raised with Christ, your life is hid with Christ in God. These are they who will be with Christ forever. These are they who will never perish. These are they who cannot be snatched out of the shepherd's hand. God will preserve his own, causing them to persevere. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, 
We thank thee that we are thy sheep. We thank thee that we are the sheep of thy pasture. We thank thee that we are the sheep that thou hast placed in the hands of thy son, our good shepherd and our great high priest, our king and our prophet. And we praise thee. And we thank thee for the anticipation of praising thee forevermore, never perishing, because thou hast done the work and not we ourselves. We thank thee and praise thee through Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> Stand with me for the benediction from Revelation 20. Revelation 20 in the fourth verse. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and such as worship not the beast, neither his image, and receive not the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Amen.